Good morning. Welcome to Grace Life Church. Glad you're here today. My name is Diane Hendricks, and I would like to offer you the Grace Life welcome. If this is your first time here today, please come see one of us. Introduce yourself. Uh, we'd like to meet you. And for those of you that are viewing at home, uh, good morning, air hug, high fives. Uh, we're glad that you're viewing online as well. And here's our welcome to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come. Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers you welcome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We are glad to be in your house today to praise you and worship you, Lord, for you are awesome and amazing, and we love you, and we thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord, each one of us individually. Uh, Lord, I know that uh, there are many people who have just varying needs today, and Lord, we trust you to meet each person uh, where they are today. Uh, help us to glorify you today, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together this morning. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, I'll worship His holy like never before oh my soul I'll worship your holy name the sun comes up it's a new day dawning it's time to sing your song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes bless the lord of my soul song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes and bless the Lord of oh my soul oh my soul I worship his soul Amen. 
Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. your holy name this morning, Father, and uh, no matter what we're going through in our life, Lord, no matter what we bring in here today, Lord, blessed be your name, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where the streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name found in the desert place. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name. Blessed be your name in the sunshine. 
fear that held us now gives way to him who is our peace his final breath upon the cross is now alive in me your I come 
and I confess Bowing here I find my rest Without you I fall apart You're the one That guides my Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. sin runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you are and where you are Lord I am free holiness is Christ Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I So teach my song to rise to you When temptation comes my way When I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay And when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Lord, I need you.
Lord, let us never forget how much we truly need you, Father. And let us never forget that you are the source, Lord. You are the source of our life, Father. You are where our life comes from, Lord. I pray for anyone in here today, Lord, that might be struggling with something or might be just in the wilderness, Father, and they don't see you, Lord. Let Show them that you are still there, Lord, and you still provide. You are still with us, Lord, and you will never leave us, Father. And I pray for Tommy as he brings the word today, Lord, that you speak through him. And let your word come to life to us, Father. And let us leave here feeling just re-energized, Lord, and just encouraged. And uh, let us go out into the world and be the light in our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. Mute is not the same as on. My apologies. Good morning, guys. If you have a Bible or an app on your phone or whatever, Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is where we'll be today. The entire Psalm, verses 1 through 11, if you'll open up there, I'll read God's Word before our message. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Your steadfast life is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and will praise you with Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Brent. Good morning, Grace Life Church. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet and you're a guest, I'm Tommy, the lead pastor here at Grace Life, and certainly hope we can connect afterward. If you are uh, with us today and you haven't been back in a while, we are continuing a series called Culture Check, and we've been in this series for, this is our fifth week now, and what we're talking about is how a gospel doctrine about the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus coming to rescue and, and restore the world, beginning with us, how that message, that doctrine, that theology produces a culture. It produces something that's beautiful and compelling and attractive. 
that unbelievers can lean in and listen up and see and hear and experience. Gospel doctrine, what you believe on paper, when that matches what you carry out and practice, it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's compelling. And that's a culture. And we've been talking about our culture here. We want to think more often and more deeply about the kind of culture that Grace Life Church has and what we can do to align that culture more accurately with the gospel message that we proclaim on paper. And so far, we've looked at, uh, we've looked at three different things. We've looked at uh, a welcoming culture and a world of exclusivity and cliques and shutouts. We've looked at a culture of walking in the light in an age of deception and darkness and pretending and never let them see you sweat. And then the third thing we looked at was a culture of warring to keep all of life in alignment with or in step with the gospel. What that looks like in an age of hypocrisy and and self-justification. So being honest, staying open, and being humble. And I know we got a lot of people that are watching online, and I welcome you again. Welcome back to Grace Life. Thank you for, for your faithfulness to worship with us. And maybe you're not even a part of Grace Life Church. Maybe you're part of a church that doesn't have the technology to gather and meet right now, but we're thankful that, that you can join us today for worship and thankful for all the Grace Lifers who uh, aren't ready yet to rejoin us. We support you, and we're grateful that you're following along. And so to everybody, I would say this has been, uh, for me personally, for my family and my marriage, even for our leadership, this has been a very impactful series, just studying these things and ruminating these things in my mind and heart every week has been life-shaping for me and life-changing, and I hope it is for you too. I hope it's transformative, and I would encourage you, and this always sounds like a pastor beating his own drum, but I can promise you it's not. Please stay current with this. All these messages are recorded. They're videoed. You can download them. You can listen. You can watch. Uh, we have a blog that I write every week on our website. Courtney Wampler does an amazing job of, of doing some dig deeper questions for our families uh, to go deeper with their children or whoever to use. And then we've recommended a book by Ray Ortland, and we gave a free copy to every family unit here at Grace Life. And so all those things are yours, and my sermon notes are yours if you want them, just for the asking, for the taking, just to ask. And I hope that everyone is, is following along and enjoying this and growing the way that I am. And thank you for the encouragement. So, so far we have looked at three passages in the New Testament. We've looked at Romans 15, we looked at 1 John 1, and we looked at Galatians 2. Um, today, we're going to be in the Old Testament. You've heard the text read already. We're going to be in Psalm 63, and uh, I'm going to use PowerPoint today. We're going to see how well it works for us. There's a formula in the book, if you've been following along with uh, Ray Ortland called Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. He's got a formula in that book that's, that's really helpful, and here's the formula. Gospel doctrine... Minus or without gospel culture is hypocrisy. We saw that in Galatians 2. Gospel culture without gospel doctrine is fragility. It's fragility. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But if you have gospel doctrine plus gospel culture, that's a powerful church. That's a witnessing church. That's a church that's not ignorable to the world. The world will, will, will notice that. They'll lean in. They'll scratch their head. They'll, they'll want to know about this hope that you have within you like Peter talks about. But today, for this passage, I want to really hone in on the fragility. You've got, you've got a gospel culture. It seems to be beautiful, attractive. There's kindness. 
but you're not centered around this message. You don't have the theology, the depth, the doctrine. So what kind of culture will that ultimately be? It will be a very fragile culture. And here's what I mean by a fragile culture. I mean it will be delicate. It will just be sentimental. The slightest change in temperature could set it off. It's not galvanized. It's not secure. It's not anchored. It's not safe, honestly. Everyone's on edge. Everyone's paranoid, neurotic, maybe skeptical, cynical. Or they can be. Just at a moment's notice, it looks okay for now, but when the winds, when the storm comes, it's very fragile and delicate. Have you ever helped somebody move? You have, haven't you? I have. I'm a pastor, man. I help people move all the time. And, of course, we understand when there's boxes that are marked what? Fragile. But what if every box in the truck was fragile? I, I just got to be honest. I would not want to help that person move. You know why? It would take forever, and I'd be so paranoid. Like, okay, be careful with this one, bro. What's in it? Don't know. It's fragile. Just watch out. Handle with care. It's very delicate. And some, some churches can be like that if we're not careful, man. If we drift from the doctrine, we're just all high-fiving. We love each other. We're friendly. We're kind. And then something like a pandemic hits, or civil and social unrest, or two hurricanes start heading for your state, or there's protest, or whatever it is, man, your fragility rises to the surface, and before you know it, you're like a mess. You are a mess, because what you had was just cheap, it was shallow, it was just an inch thick and a mile wide, it was just trivial, cheap, not deep. That's how a lot of churches function and operate. And I certainly don't want this church to, to function or operate that way. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. Check this out. He said, we have this treasure. Now, the treasure is the gospel. Paul was a missionary, and he was carrying this message to everywhere in Asia Minor and the world. And he says, we have or carry this treasure in jars of clay. That's what we are. We're broken jars that carry a very precious, glorious message. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, and not to us. And then he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And then my favorite, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Does, does that sound fragile to you? And don't say, well, he's an apostle. No, he said, we, this can be all of us. I don't know about you, I want whatever's in that jar of clay that produces that. <laughs> Do you? I don't want to be fragile, man. I want to be galvanized. I want to be resilient and tough. And I don't want it to just be posture. I want it to be true, deep, genuine, affectionate. I'm hanging on to God for dear life, and he's got me. He's holding me up. I'm clinging to him. That's what you heard in this passage. One of my favorite movies. You knew it was coming. <laughs> Rocky Four, man. How many people have seen it? No, don't raise your hands. Say amen if you've seen it. Now, it's my favorite. It's like Russia against the USA, right? Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren, who was a true European kickbox champion at the time and almost beat uh, Sylvester Stallone to smithereens in, in, in that movie. But anyway, there's a point in that movie in the final boxing match where Ivan Drago says this. You know, they, they do their gloves, and he says, I must break you. Remember that? I must break you. In other words, little man, I'm about to tear you down. I'm about to break you. And they go at it. And like in round five or six, you remember Ivan Drago comes and he sits down in the corner and he's just been pummeling Sylvester Stallone, Rocky, to pieces. Pummeling and Rocky gets knocked down and gets up. 
And he says this. He says, he is not human. He is like a piece of iron. (laughs) That's my Russian accent. I don't know how accurate it is. Does that not sound like what Paul's saying? (laughs) Paul is a piece of iron. (laughs) He's a jar of clay. He's made out of clay, but he's like iron. What the heck, man? What's this guy made out of? It's not what he's made out of. It's not necessarily that he's holding it all together. It's that he's held together by somebody else that can weather all these changes, that can weather getting stoned and being out to, to, to sea, being in a shipwreck, being beaten, being lashed 39 times. You know that whole list, being in toil over the churches. Paul could weather that. Why? Because he had God. That sounds like the stuff that we need to be made of. David had that. David had that. And he talks about it in this passage. Now, we know that Psalm 63 was written by David. And if you're like the way I used to be, you're like, ah, it don't really matter who wrote it. It's the Word of God. But it does. And, and the, the subscription, I will call it, in the Psalms, you need to pay attention to those when you read them. They're inspired. They're just as much a part of the Word of God as the rest of that Psalm is. So the subscription here reads, a Psalm of David... When he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, God's giving you a little clue there. If you, if you want to dig deep in the Bible, you know who wrote this psalm. You know where he was when he wrote it. David wrote it in the wilderness. And God, I think, sometimes invites us to dig deeper. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know David was in the wilderness two times in his life. Once was before he was crowned king, and he was being chased, running for his life from King Saul. You remember that, right? He wasn't king yet. The other time he was in the wilderness was after he was crowned king, and it was because he was being chased by his very own son, Absalom, who was usurping his father's throne. Can you imagine? Can you, I mean, we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations if we have kids for who we want them to become, the accomplishments, all of that. Well, David's son was trying to kill his dad. <laughs> I mean, just to put it in perspective here. Your son wants to kill you, man. He wants your, your throne, but he's not content with that. He wants your life. He wants you dead, gone, out of the way, bye-bye. That's the context for this psalm. But, but it's even beyond that. And, and, and here's the reason we know that. Just so you, How do you know that? Well, look at verse 11. Six, psalm 63, verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. He's king now. He's crowned. He's in the wilderness. He's running for his life. And he's in, he's in dire straits. He's in trouble. So wh- wh- what do you do, man? What do you do when you're in dire straits like that? And, and this is, I've chosen this psalm because today we're talking about a culture of seeking God. What do you do when it seems like the bottom is falling out on your life? Whether it's a pandemic, it's an election year, there's civil, social unrest, there's two hurricanes headed for you. You've gotten a diagnosis, you've gotten a phone call, school's about to start, and from all accounts, it looks like it could be a dumpster fire. I'm just saying, that's what I'm hearing. What do you do? Now, that's one thing. I mean, Jesus said, uh, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Job said, man and woman is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. So we already know that. No surprise, no shock. We live in a fallen world. Things get dark, we go through seasons, but, but, what if you were in dire straits and it's your fault? I mean, we can look at the hurricanes and say, we didn't cause those. I mean, I guess some people would say, anyway. Or you can look at whatever's going on in the world, the pandemic, or the virus. Even some people say we caused that. I don't, 
But you get my point is some of the some of the things we find ourselves in, it's not our fault, man. We didn't do it. I didn't do it. Not guilty, Lord. This is not me. This, this is you, okay? I'm just here just trying to make the best of things. But what if, my friends, what if the bottom's falling out on your life and it is your fault? You did it. This is like the bitter fruit of all the sinful, destructive choices you made that were foolish. I remember in 2011, I was actually in Texas with my wife performing a wedding. Her sister was getting married. And my kids were being babysat by somebody close to the ocean. And I happened to turn on the TV and saw this eerie, the most eerie footage I've ever seen in my life of Japan and the tsunami. And for whatever reason, the sound on the TV didn't work. We must have gone cheap on the hotel. I don't remember. But I, you, you didn't really need the sound for the effect to hit you. Have you guys ever seen a tsunami, the footage, the airplane view footage? It's creepy, man. There's this, it looks slow. It looks very slow. And it, and it, and it looks like, oh, if I could swim, I could probably handle that. No, you couldn't. You, you cannot swim in olive oil with razor blades in it, churning. I mean, that's what a, a tsunami grinds you to pieces. But we were watching this slow wave of like grit and dirt and debris and metal and buildings and cars. And like whatever was in its path was eaten alive. Whether it was a car, a building, a road, a nuclear power plant, a person, an animal, it was done. It, this, this, this wave was unstoppable and it was chewing everything to pieces in its path and there was nothing anybody could do except cry and ask for thoughts and prayers. Now, here's, I want to compare what David is going through with a tsunami. Do you know that tsunamis, they're an effect? They are an effect. Let me say, there's cause and there's effect. Did you know that a tsunami is caused by something else? It's caused by an earthquake. And we found out later that 50 miles off the eastern coast of Japan, 50 miles off the coast, out in the middle of the ocean, 15 miles under the surface of the ocean, where the epicenter was, a 9.1 powered earthquake happened. And that earthquake was, it, it seemed to be, I mean, it's a nine-pointer, so it's big, but it was quiet, it was subtle, it was under the surface. I think it even happened at night. But that earthquake produced something. <laughs> this, this wave, this tsunami, you know what a tsunami is? It's, in this case, it was a 30, in, in some places they measured this tsunami wave was 38 meters tall. Meters. So that's 12 stories. That's over 100 feet tall. This earthquake over here that nobody could see, nobody knew what was happening. It was in the quiet, in the darkness. It produced this 100-foot-tall tidal wave that smashed 200 square miles of the coast of Japan, displaced 500,000 residents, killed 20,000 people, some of whom are still missing, so they're presumed dead, and did $350 billion worth of damage. Wow. <laughs> wow. Who's, whose fault is this tsunami? It's the earthquake. And here's the point I want to make. King David, there was an earthquake in his life. Maybe you guys know about it. It was his sexual sin against Bathsheba. It's interesting. 2 Samuel, you're reading it. It's top of the world, man. Chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, all David's victory over the enemies. Chapter 11, he sees a naked woman bathing, and he lusts, he covets, he envies, he sins for her, he takes her. Some scholars believe he raped her. We don't hear anything about permission. The king saw, he desired, he took, he got her pregnant. There was deceit, there was lust, there was envy. 
There was treachery. There was murder. He had her husband sent to the most violent, dangerous place of battle where he knew he would be killed. He tried to cover it up. And then comes the tsunami. Because the Bible says when you reap the wind, excuse me, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Be certain your sin will find you out. So here's David. He's made a terrible choice. So chapter 11 is this earthquake, and chapters, chapter 12 is his repentance. Thank God the Lord sent a prophet, Nathan. We all need a prophet to rebuke us in our sin, don't we? Nathan came, confronted David, and David repented of his sin. He confessed it to God, and God cleansed him. And thank God for, clean, for cleansing and forgiveness and imputed righteousness. But there's a fallout for his sin, and it's chapters. If, if you want to read later today, I obviously can't cover it all. Chapters 13 to about 19 is a tsunami. Is a, for anybody that ever wanted to step out on their family, you should go read 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19. Because all the, some scholars believe that David broke every commandment when he took Bathsheba. Because here's what happens in his family. Envy, murder, rape. That's why some people believe it was rape, because one of his sons rapes his half-sister. Amnon rapes, rapes Tamar, one of his half-sisters. Then Absalom hears about it, sees that David's not doing anything, so he murders Amnon. And then there's conspiracy, conspiracy treachery, deceit. It's all there. Isn't that interesting? Everything that David did in his life, he's seeing the consequences played out in his own family and in his kingdom. And so what happens is Absalom says, I'm taking the throne. He conspires against his dad. He elicits a following. Conspiracy, treachery, deceit, underhandedness. And word gets back to David, and you know what he does? He says, I'm leaving Jerusalem. This is all. I deserve all of this. This is my fault. I did this, and I'm not going to put my city and my people in danger. I'm leaving. So David leaves Jerusalem, and he goes into the wilderness, and what does he do? So that brings you up to speed, right? Does that make that psalm come alive? <laughs> what would you do if you're in the middle looking at this tsunami that you can't stop? You started it. You can't stop it. It's your fault. I wanted to take the most radical context I could and apply it to us. Because you'll hear things and you're like, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's well and good, the pandemic, but you don't understand, Pastor. My life is a dumpster fire and it's my fault. Well, then this is your psalm. This is for you <laughs> and me. Because don't you love it? In the Bible, we see that we can go back to God. We deserve the hammer of judgment to fall on us. But we find a, a, something scandalous, something surprising. God actually has more grace for us. God loves to give his people a fresh start even after they've sinned and been deceitful and treacherous and murderous and adulterous. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that crazy? So what do we do when the bottom falls out and it's our fault? You can add, and it's our fault. What do we do? What's the culture? The culture is you seek God. I know it's a long introduction, and here, here's the outline. What does it look like seeking God when the bottom falls out and it's your fault? Here's what it looks like. Three points. God is our desire. God is our delight. And God is our defense. That's what this psalm says. God is our Desire, God is our delight, and God is our defense. So Psalm 63 puts the words in our mouth. This is a prayer of David. He's not giving up. He's not, that's it, I'm done, God hates me, it's over. No, he is 
very actively seeking God. Check this out. Oh, God, you are my God. Don't we need to remind ourselves of that when our trouble hits us? God's still your God. He hasn't gone anywhere. You've moved. <laughs> you moved. But God's still there. He's never gone anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He's seen the worst in you. He's seen it all. He's seen the deepest, darkest, blackest, most despicable, disgusting, deplorable parts of you. And he's staying. He's staying. He's not stepping out on you. He's there. He's committed. He's a covenantal God. You'll see that later. Hesed, your loving kindness. Because of your loving kindness, your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise you. That's what David says in verse 7. David has seen that love. He's tasted that love. He's experienced that love. And that is why when the bottom falls out and it's his fault, he's still seeking God. That word seek, it's kind of a rare word in Hebrew. And it actually means to diligently, to earnestly. Some people say it means early. It's a desperate, desperate quest. It's a desperate quest. David is seeking God earnestly. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's comparing his soul right now to the, the desolate Judean wilderness. He's saying, I'm parched. I'm thirsty. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I know I'm, it's my fault that I'm here. And even though I have 600 fighters with me, I have my counselors. I have everyone here. I need you, God. I need you. I love the song. You know, we never, we, I never coordinate with the band what songs they sing. I'm, I'm just not fast enough. I don't even know what I'm preaching sometimes until Thursday. But as Brent said, it's the unity of the spirit. We, weren't we singing that song? I need, I won't sing. I need you. Oh, I need you. I forgot the rest of it, but it, it was a good thought in my head when it was <laughs> my one defense, my righteousness. That's it. God, you're all I have. Some, I like what Jared Wilson said. Sometimes you don't know that God is all you need until he's all you have. And then you know. David has nobody. This is his fault. In his mind, maybe he's challenging like, this is the last straw. God's done with you. God's sick of you, David. Have you ever thought that? God's so tired of me. Surely he's done. Surely this is it. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. And God's going to release me from being his follower because I just give him such a bad repute. Mm -mm. Nope. No, this is a cultural thing with David. This is not the first time you find him talking about these things. That's what I love about the Bible, man. We get the whole picture. This is a culture. This is seeking God for David was an involuntary response. He had built this habit, this rhythm in his life so much that it was almost like he didn't have to think about it. He just naturally sought after God. Whether it was his fault the mess he was in or whether it wasn't, he was seeking God. Every psalm you find that's authored by David, you're going to find an element of that. He's seeking God. He's talking about, I counted up. I have so much fun in my study. I started counting up in the psalms the word hesed, hesed in Hebrew. It means covenantal, faithful, unfailing, never giving up, never stopping love. Okay, It's like gospel in the Old Testament. Unconditional covenantal faithfulness of God. I started stacking up all the times David used that in the Psalms, and I got to like Psalm 30-something, and it was over a dozen, and I'm like, man, I just love that. If, if you're rehearsing that truth that much in your mind, and we get the New Testament version, which is even more clear, not pixelated or cloudy, if it was a whisper in the Old Testament, it's a shout with a bullhorn in the New Testament, 
We don't have to say like, man, I wish what David, I wish I had what David had. Oh my word. (laughs) David wishes he had what you had. He didn't see with clarity the Christ. He didn't have with, with fullness of power the Holy Spirit. He didn't have with completion the canon, the word of God. He didn't have any of those things. He had shadows and types. And yet, look how galvanized he is. Man, I, I wish the Spirit of God would help me communicate to us today how much better we have it than David had it. Because <laughs> I find myself being envious sometimes. Like, Lord, I want to seek you like that. And it's almost like God saying, you can. <laughs> I gave you 150 Psalms, dude. What are you waiting on? You can go as deep as you want and never touch bottom. Psalm 63 is for people like us who've been exposed to the gospel and should know better. (laughs) David was a mess, but he was God's mess. Ray Ortland said this in this book at one point. I don't know what page, I'm sorry, but he says, What will it take for the gospel, which we love, to renew the churches that we also love? And then he answers it like this. Given the corruption of our hearts... Jeremiah 17, 9. The first thing to do is kneel before God. Kneel before God. And humbly beg Him to hold on to us. Every one of us is always five minutes away from moral and ministry disaster. Uh, Exhibit A, David. Everything was going great. He was on top of his palace. Some people say he was writing a psalm. I don't know, a speculation. And then he saw Bathsheba, five minutes away from a tsunami. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to keep us humble and sober and dependent. Five minutes away from moral ministry disaster, let's be realistic about how contrary our desires can be to the ways of God. You and I are not the saviors, Ray Ortland says. There is only one savior. Therefore, now check this out. Therefore, we must hurl ourselves into his arms right now and never stop doing so moment by moment as long as we live. That's what it means to have a culture of seeking. Hurl yourselves into the arms of the one you've offended, moment by moment, right now, and never stop doing so as long as you live. That's what it means to seek God. And if you build that as a habit and a rhythm in your life, it will become involuntary. It will be your go-to response, not picking up your phone and texting somebody, not venting your spleen on your social media platform. It will be to go to God in the wilderness and say, you're my God. That's what I need. You're what I need right now. And my soul is famished and parched and craving, and I'm not going to be satisfied until I get you, God. And God says, I'm here. haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. You will find me, Proverbs 8, 17 says, I think, when you seek for me with all your heart. I'm right here. I'm yours. Matthew 7, knock and you shall get the door open unto you or <laughs> seek and you will find, right? Those are promises. <laughs> I'm sorry. I get the King James mixed up with the other stuff. So uh, there's, a, there's a, a part in this first section here. Verse 2. Just to prove to you this was David's habit. This was his way of life. This was a culture for him. He said, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Past tense, David is looking back and he's saying, 
I know you're glorious. I've seen it. I've seen power. I've seen glory. I've experienced it. I've felt it. I've been the recipient of it. You are a glorious God and a powerful God. You have been in the past. I know you will be now. I know you will be now. You know, this may sound like I'm beating a, a dead horse here, but one of the truths that we built this church on and that I'm hoping we're building our lives on is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, beholding the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed, transformed, metamorphosized into his glory image from one level of glory to the next. What you see changes you. Whatever is, is capturing your imagination, it's what is shaping you. And I think right now, the cultural, historical moment that we're all in, which I've, I've, the words that we hear being used are unprecedented. And I understand, for most of us, this is We've never faced anything like this. But if you look at history, this is nothing new. Bourbonic plagues and storms and all that stuff. Here's what should be fresh to us, though. Here's what should be more fresh than whatever we're going through is God's grace. He has more of it to pour out onto us. Grace upon grace, fullness upon fullness. James 4, therefore, he gives more grace. So whatever we are looking at and beholding is what's shaping and changing us. And David says, I've looked upon you. I've seen. I've seen your weightiness. That word glory, it means kabod or kabod in Hebrew. That's why you've heard Ichabod in the Old Testament. It means the glory has departed. It's gone. Ik, no, gone. Ichabod is the glory's gone. But David says, I've seen your kabod. I've seen your glory. I've experienced it. That has changed me. That has shaped me. And I know glory for a lot of us is just a word. You know what it means in Hebrew? It means weighty. It means heavy. And I hear that word, man, this is heavy news. Man, that's heavy. Or if you were a skater or a surfer back in the 80s, heavy, man, right? Radical, wicked, righteous. What is so heavy to you? What is capturing your attention right now? Because there's so much stuff out there that will, if you let it. And David is saying, Lord, this tsunami's awful. I caused it. It's my fault. I'm looking at the fallout in my own family. It's heavy, but there's something more heavy to me. There's something more real that captures my imagination more than that, and it's you. I've seen it. I've tasted it. There's a book called A World of Ideas, Part 2. A guy named Bill Moyer wrote, and he interviewed a guy named Jacob Needleman in that book. And Jacob Needleman He's a fascinating philosopher, existentialist, news reporter. He's written. He's done interviews. I just love reading his stuff. And he said that, he tells a story. He was invited to be an observer at the 1975 launch of Apollo 17. That was the year I was born, put that in perspective. A long time ago. Three men were like launched up. This was after we landed on the moon. This was a space program. We were taking men back to the moon to, to do some stuff up there anyway. He tells about the night that he watched that launch. It was a night launch. So he said he, along with about 100 other reporters, were all invited onto the grassy knoll, the lawn, uh, to watch this thing. And they were there hours before it started. And he said they were all drinking beer. They were were wisecracking. They were calloused. They were skeptical. They probably had too much to drink. and, And they were being what probably crusty news reporters were being, you know. And he said, then the countdown began. And I want to I read to you, because it, it, it captures kind of what I'm trying to say that David was saying in this. Let me, let me read to you what he said. All these cynical, half-lit reporters that were calloused and cold and joking with one another, making wise cracks, and then the countdown began. He says, the first thing you see 
It's this extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can look at. Everything is illuminated with this light. Then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come across. You hear a whoosh and a hum, and he says it enters right through you. You're shaken to your core, everyone that was there watching this. And he says you can practically hear everyone's jaws dropping. The sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place. As this thing goes up and up, the first stage ignites in this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star. And then you realize that there are human beings in it. And then there's total silence. And then he describes the scene, those those reporters that were wisecracking, drinking, making light of everything. He says, people quietly got up. And they helped each other. They were kind. They opened doors. They looked at one another, speaking quietly and reverently. These were suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder had made them moral. And then he goes on in that book to talk about it and it lasted about until they got back to the hotel room. Now that's interesting to me. Here's this sight that's so astonishing, so mind-blowing, so gripping, so fills you with wonder that it actually makes you moral for a few minutes. (laughs) You stop with the jokes, you put your beer down, and you're kind. And you're reverent and you're quiet and you're thoughtful and you're reflective to see this mighty, powerful, glorious scene in front of you unfolding. And my contention is, if that, something that man built and accomplished, can make people moral, oh my word, what can going back and seeing the power and the glory of God at the cross do to us? And listen, I would imagine that if if you watch that launch every single night, it would get boring to you. I was thinking, if you guys could hear the dumb thoughts in my head Saturday night at one in the morning, I'm thinking, what would this, what, what, how can I think of analogies? If you, if you were in charge of the fireworks at Disney, that'd be cool, man, for like the first week. And then you'd be, put earplugs in, you'd wear glasses, so over this. Or if you lived near Disney, wouldn't they start annoying you? <laughs> People drive for thousands of miles to see those fireworks and stay late with their kids screaming in a stroller to see them, Right? We have, but it, gets old, it becomes old hat. But for David and for us, the glory of God is so fresh. It's so new. It's like you're re-experiencing the glory and the grace and the power of God from a different angle. That's why when we talk about the gospel and people say, yeah, 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 I'm like, you don't, you don't understand. We've got 66 books and they're all about the same person doing the same, doing the same thing. They're just different angles. Angels desire, Peter said, to to look into this. They're eternally curious about it. And we have the full orb picture God has given to us so that as often as we want to, we can go back. In fact, talking about this culture uh, and how involuntary it is, these are all, can you see this? I, I put way too many of these in here. Do you know when something's involuntary, you don't really have to think about it to do it, Right? When seeking God becomes a part of of your culture, it means you don't really have to put a lot of thought. You do have to put effort into it, but that's okay. Grace is not against effort. It's against earning. There's a difference. When when seeking God becomes uh, a part of your culture, it's a habit. But you you can lose that habit. That habit can become old school to you. Do you see, have you ever watched somebody throw... Matt, you, you, you need to learn how to do this. Throw pizza dough 
or ride a bike or shoot a basketball, you can close your eyes and not even think about it and do it. Or ride a skateboard, play guitar, jump rope. I like watching chefs with razor-sharp Ginsu knives doing a and I'm thinking, man, they're going to cut their finger off. No, they're not. Muscle memory. Have you ever heard that? Muscle memory. It's a, it's a powerful thing. If you do something enough, your, it's not actually your muscles. It's your brain. You cut, you cut pathways. Did you guys know this? This is a studied, confirmed science. You cut pathways with every repeated habit you engage in. And let me give you an illustration. That is a dense jungle. Now, if I wanted to cut a path through that jungle, and we'll call that path seeking God, okay? If I wanted to seek God the first time I do it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be strange. It's going to feel foreign to me, a little bit alien and awkward. But I do it. I go and I get a machete and I start hacking. It's terrible. I'm, I'm using an analogy of a man with a machete hacking for seeking God, but so it goes. Uh, do you know what? Eventually, you're going you're gonna to get that. You're going to get that. But it's not going to happen the first time or the second or the third or the fourth. But if you keep picking up that machete and you keep ha- hacking and you keep clearing a path, you're going to find not only is it easier to find your way to God, it's more enjoyable. <laughs> and it's involuntary. It's a way of life. It's become a culture now. You are seeking God no matter what happens, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a hurricane or whether it's school starting back, or whether it's you pulling your kids out and homeschooling, or whether it's cancel, cancer, or cancel, <laughs> culture, whatever it is, or whether it's your own consequences or your sexual sin, no matter what the circumstance is, you have been cutting paths to seeking God. That's your way of life. And you want to go there because you have looked past tense. You've seen the glory. You've seen the power. You've tasted that the Lord is good. And you want to go back there. That's your habit. That's your way of life. That becomes a culture. I believe that's what David teaches us. And it's all over. I could have picked any psalm. I could have picked psalm, is it psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me. Therefore, I will not be shaken. He's at my right hand. You know what that is? That's a, that's a way of life. That's a culture of seeking God. David says, no matter what, I've set the Lord always before me. Therefore, guess what? I ain't going to be shaken. I'm galvanized. David, there's a giant. He's taunted Israel for 40 days. And David says, get my slingshot. Muscle memory will kick right in. I know how to use it. I'm not afraid of the giant. Why? Because I've been seeking God as a way of life. That's my culture. I don't care if it's a giant or a pandemic or a tsunami, whatever it is. The culture is that of seeking God, and it's driven. That's the gospel doctrine that drives and creates and, and produces and protects this culture. And man, I want that. That's a personal culture that spreads corporately. Can you imagine what kind of a church Grace Life would be? And in some ways I see this, not any kind of feather in our, the hat of our leadership. It's just you guys amaze me. When one or two people are seeking God together, it starts to spread. And then before you know it, a whole church is seeking, that becomes a culture, a way of life, an involuntary response to trouble and pressure and affliction. And it's beautiful. That's what muscle memory is. Derek Kidner wrote a psalm on the, uh, a commentary on the psalm, and he said this. He said, the longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God in the dark, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. In other words, there's familiarity here. David says, David's not saying, God, where are you? Where are you at? He's saying, God, I know you're there. I've seen you. I've heard you. I've felt and experienced your touch and your power. 
And I need you now more than I ever have. I'm in this wilderness. And you know, our bodies are made out of 60% water. And when we get dehydrated, man, we feel the desperation. One of my sons, I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> One of my sons, it was in the very beginning of summer, and they were outside, and they were working on their bike, and the chain came off. You guys ever put your own chain back on your bike? You know how you do it? You know, you got to take the chain, it's greasy, and you got to spin the, the, the sprocket, and you, the chain goes over it. Sometimes your finger gets caught in that thing. Oh, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, that's what happened. It was hot, it was like 100 degree, humidity, it had been raining all week. His chain came off, it was greasy, he hadn't drank any water all day. Parents beware in Florida, right? He hadn't drank any water, and he kept... I was in, I, I think I, maybe I came home for lunch that day, and I was in there, and my son walks in. I've never seen him like this. And I, I freak out really easily. <laughs> I should have been doing what this psalm says. My son walks in, he holds his finger up, and there's blood running all down it. And he goes, Dad, Mom, his face is ashen white and pale, and literally, he collapsed into our arms. And I'm like, ah, call 911, what the, what's because you having a heart attack? And my wife's like, honey, he's fine. He needs water. <laughs> but shouldn't we feel like that when we're not seeking God and we're desperate and we're thirsty and we're dry and we're parched? Yes, we should. We should. Walking with the Lord for David was a way of life. He, he sought the Lord. I love what, uh, what the next verse says here. Don't, don't be scared, guys. We're going to finish here. I'm not going to take as long for the other points here. We're wrapping up. David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Meaning, that's the most alive thing to me. That's the most real thing to me right now. God, your love is more real to me and more powerful to me and more compelling to me and your glory more weighty than that tsunami of my life playing out before me. Therefore, I'm going to seek you and I'm going to leave everything in your hands. If Absalom wants my throne and you want, it to, you want him to have it, he can have it. I've got you. I've got you. I don't need anything else. I love what uh, Eugene Peterson in his message translation says, In your generous love, I am really living at last. In your generous love, I am really living at last. I just wonder if there's somebody here and you could say, That's not really true of me, Pastor. I'm not really living at last because I'm not living in God's generous love. See, you're wanting this culture, but this doctrine that drives this culture, you're not rapping, you're not seeking the Lord, you're not getting that. It's, it's peripheral to you. It's superficial. It's like a Hallmark card. God's love may be to you like it was for me many years, like a Hallmark card. Just puppies and rainbows and warm thoughts and prayers and just really cheap, cheap and a little bit embarrassing. For me, and I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, but when I was younger, it was like, I don't know, it felt, church felt like, well, well the guys go hunting, and the women go to church with, with the little kids, kind of. That's, that's kind of the culture that, I, at least I, that was my perception. And like, you know, church is for weak people. <laughs> Man, was I blind. I didn't see Jesus hanging on the cross, the blood, the curse, the nakedness, the shame. Didn't hear the cries, why have you forsaken me? See the abandonment, seeing that that was the curse we deserved. I didn't see that. I didn't get that. It wasn't a cross-centered or resurrection-filled environment for me. Because I didn't wrap my mind around the, 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 the gravity of the debt that we owed God, 
the cross didn't mean anything. I wasn't boasting in it. And I couldn't appreciate the resurrection, the victory. I was trying to accomplish my own victories. <laughs> David says, your loving kindness, your head has said, your steadfast love is better than life. And so my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And then the second point really quick here, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And here, here's a powerful, verse 7. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Verse 7, you have been my help. Again, David looking back. Listen, guys, I want, to tell you, I want to tell you a secret. If when things are going really well for you, seeking is not your culture, it's going to be really hard when, when the boat of your life is adrift to figure that out. It's really hard. That's the worst time in the world to say, okay, I guess I need to start seeking God now. If you don't know that he's been your help, <laughs> if, if, if you have not seen him and tasted and felt his power and his glory... It's going to be so challenging for you. It really is. It's going to be so challenging for you. And you're going to find, you're going to look for other peripheral, you're going to look for coping mechanisms. I was telling Sarah this earlier, man, I hope, I pray, one of the cultures I never want to have here is a culture of criticism. And here's what I mean by that. It is so easy for me as a pastor to be looking for sermon fodder and to find something to criticize in the world, to find a teacher to criticize or a movement to criticize. It's not hard. It's very easy to do, and I feel righteous doing it. So whenever I bring up anything hopefully righteously critical, <laughs> I pray that it's instructive and that it doesn't, it doesn't create this, yeah, we're right and they're wrong. But because of everything going on as a pastor, I'm reading articles, I'm online, uh, people are sending me stuff that's helping them. I'm seeing a lot of help that's being offered to Christians, and I'm grateful for it because these are strange time. Mental stress is through the roof right now. You've probably read those statistics too. And I've even read stuff about pastors um, resigning, some pastors harming themselves. It's a, terrible, it's a terrible time right now in our nation. It really is. But as I've said before, the gospel shines the brightest when it's in the darkest places, right? So people that maybe are concerned for me have sent me stuff. Praise God, you are praying for me. I think God has me in a, in a good place. Um, some of the stuff I've read, here, here is... I want to think of the right way to say this. I've read like, hey, if you're struggling right now, here's some helpful advice for you. And I, I, I wrote this down because I didn't, I didn't want to misquote anybody. This is one of the articles I read. And again, these are all great, great points of advice. And some of them you'll find in the Bible. And some of them I've told you before. If you're struggling mentally right now, first get a counselor. Amen. Man, I... We all need counsel. We need to counsel one another, and sometimes we need to find a good counselor like Melissa to help us take the finished work of Jesus and apply it to our life, right? First, get a counselor. Second, be honest with your primary care physician about anxiety and depression. Amen. Third, do less. Reevaluate and recreate realistic expectations. Now, it's talking about the pandemic and people that struggle with anxiety and depression. Fourth, practice friendship. Reach out to your friends. Man, amen to that. I've beat that drum here too. Fifth, lean on your peers. Network or burden-carrying peer group. 
Those are all helpful points. I've shared those with people. I'm not criticizing those points, but. (laughs) But if that's all that a person is telling me to do, I feel like it's incomplete because I need this. I got to have this. It's, David had 600 soldiers with him. He had counselors and consultants. I would imagine if David sneezed or had a runny nose, he had the best Israelite physicians at his disposal. He had networks, he had peers, he had leaders, but he wasn't interested in any of them right then. If you read this psalm, God, you are my God. Earnestly and desperately I seek you. I got to have you. I need your power. I need your glory. You've been my help. I'm clinging. You know the word for cling there is the same one used in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and his father and shall be joined together to his wife. Cling. It means glue. It means deep union and solidarity. He says, you've been my help. Therefore, I'm clinging to you. My soul is clinging to God and I'm finding shelter under his wings. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? So don't take that critical spirit as, those are all good things. I just feel like they're incomplete. And that David gives us a a better, more full-orbed view of, man, what would it look like to seek God? It would look like this. God is your desire. God is your delight. You're not going to be satisfied until you're there under his wings. And then lastly, God is your defense. He's your defense. You know what's interesting to me? People are, are seeking David's life. His own son's trying to assassinate him. And David's seeking God. He's relishing God's help, God's power, God's presence. And it's almost, it's almost as if for a minute, David forgot he had enemies trying to kill him. (laughs) You can get so caught up and lost in the wonder and adoration, and absorbed would be the, the best word. You can get so absorbed in God's love and protection and presence that it's almost an afterthought. Oh yeah, there's enemies. They're trying to kill me. Oh well, God, I handle them. That's what he says. Look, last part of this. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be given a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. He's saying, God, you're my defense. I ain't got to defend myself. And look, there's there's multiple applications of this. I'm not radically defensive and insecure. God, you're my defender. Go handle these enemies. They're nothing for you. And if you read, I would encourage you, read the narrative, 2 Samuel 13 through 19. David is like so resigned. He's leaving and there's a man named Shemiah and he's throwing rocks at David, cursing, kicking dust up. Do you remember this? And the commander Joab says, let me, Adam. Let me go and take that dog's head off. Who's he think he is to curse the king? You remember what David says? He says, no, no, leave him alone. Let him curse me. Maybe God told him to curse me. I deserve it. Later, if God wants to handle him, God can. And you know what? God did. <laughs> if, you read, if you read the story, God did handle Shemiah. You don't throw rocks at, at God's anointed and, and, uh, and slip behind the radar. Anyway, I could say much more. I'm ending with this, okay? Under the shadow of his wings. What does that mean? You know, you never really know if, if these stories that you hear are true, but I read this on the internet. <laughs> that there was a fire at Yellowstone National Park years ago. And swept through. It didn't destroy the whole park, but it, you know, it made uh, it made an original original crispy recipe out of some of the park and the trees. And the rangers were walking up the mountainside, looking at the damage afterwards. And one of them saw like this petrified, perfectly preserved, extra crispy 
blackened and tarred bird at the base of a tree and was like disgusted by it. He thought, oh, it's gross. Look what, the, look what the fire did to that bird. And he took a stick and poked at it and kicked it over. And three little chicks alive ran out from under that hen's wing because the mother had sheltered them from the blaze. And this story can't be true. <laughs> It'd be really cool if it was, though. Because in a way, isn't that what this psalm is showing us? What, what has Christ done for you? Do you realize? They're like, oh, that's cool. God's like a hen or something, and we're under his wing. Oh, okay, cool. No, 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 you don't understand. Do you know what he shielded you from? Do you know what God protected you from? Do you know what he absorbed on your behalf? Do you know what he took for you? Do you know what it means to have a substitute, the Lamb of God, who stood in your place and absorbed the fire of God's anger and wrath and fury? You could be under the shelter of his wing so that when the wrath passes and the fire's gone, you can emerge clean, transformed, full, complete, cleansed, <laughs> forgiven, free, liberated. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And that's the Old Testament. That's like the 480 standard pixelated view. Do you really know how much clearer we can see and appreciate what we have in Christ? And do you know what kind of culture that produces? It produces a culture of seeking God. Because I'm living in your love, I can live at last. Are you? Are you seeking God? Do you know this power? Have you tasted this glory the way that David has? I hope that you have. I hope that you do today and that you don't stop. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love, for your generosity, for your power, for your help. I pray that we would be a culture who seeks you and seeks you first and seeks you early and continue seeking you, Lord, until we taste and see that you are good and we feel your power and the spirit of God that you have filled our hearts with, Lord, just unleashes this liberating love that we can, we can go out and, and feel galvanized and we can leverage our life for the good of the kingdom. We can truly be the insiders who exist for the outsiders. We can be your agents of change. We can be your ambassadors. We can represent you. We can show the world what you are really like. Lord, we're not panicking. We're not alarmed. The sky's not always falling. We're not chicken little. Sure, we have our emotions, Lord. We, we lament and we, we grow weary and exhausted. We don't hold that back. We don't pretend. We walk in the light. But as we do those things, we're seeking you and we're finding help and strength, and power, and fresh energy, because you are our God, and you have not abandoned us, Lord. You're with us, and you have more grace to pour out and lavish us with, Lord. And may we take the posture of humility, may we be humble, may we be hopeful. May we taste and see that the Lord is good, and find your steadfast love, and find your satisfaction, and let you be our defender, Lord. You can defend us. You can take care of our enemies. They're too mighty for us. We can't concern ourselves with them, Lord. You sit on your throne and we trust you. Thank you for these truths. We pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, listen, this is the time in our, our service where we spend just a few minutes pondering what we've heard. This is the Selah, the song of reflection. So our, our worship team or Kyle, whoever, is going gonna, is gonna to play while you just think more deeply on what this psalm says. Maybe open, crack your Bible back open. Uh, and just read this slowly. We couldn't cover every verse, every jot and tittle. We'll, we'll leave that for another time. We got our prayer team. Bill and Christy are in the back. Would love to meet with you. Cliff's going to join them and pray with you. If you want to confess sin, you want to walk in the light this morning, you want to confess your sin, you want to ask 
for help and for backup. You want to ask for prayer? Are you sick? Are you tired? Are you sick and tired? <laughs> Whatever it is, this is your time to do that. And no pressure to do that. You can just sit in your seat and enjoy the good news that Jesus is for you and he loves you and he died and rose for you. And we've got work to do in his name. Amen.
you, Kyle. All right. Thank you, Tommy. It was a good... Um, I'm super glad to be uh, continuing this uh, message series, and I hope that you all are as well. Um, just to close out our service, just a few announcements and things uh, still going on this month. Um, the baby bottle drive um, for the Central Florida Pregnancy Center, um, the last week to bring back your baby bottle will be next week, um, the last Sunday of the month. Um, there are still some baby bottles, so if you either have filled your baby bottle already and would like to fill another one or attempt to, um, or if you haven't grabbed one yet, um, I'll be standing out there in the lobby, um, and you can grab one there. Um, it's sitting right on a, a little high chair there. Um, and then also, uh, speaking of the Central Florida Pregnancy Center, um, they have reached out um, and would like uh, just more opportunities uh, to partner together, which I think is really awesome. Um, last week, I um, had mentioned that all of that change um, that we are collecting goes towards providing um, ultrasounds and resources uh, to men and women um, in our community. And I think it's just an awesome way for us to go um, in our gather, grow, and go that we do here at Grace Life. Um, and we are looking for somebody who might be passionate about um, serving in this capacity. And we would uh, just like to find a liaison between us and uh, the Central Florida Pregnancy Center, uh, someone within our uh, congregation. And if that's something that you're interested in um, so that we can continue to do more um, ministry in our community with our friends at the Central Florida Pregnancy Center, you can shoot uh, me an email at uh, contact at gracelifeflorida.com. I think TJ has it right up on the screen up there. Um, and I'd love to get you connected. Um, in that way. And then next week is our fifth Sunday. I can't even believe that we're talking about the end of August already, but if you are interested in um, baptism or child dedication or becoming um, a member um, of Grace Life, you can also email me at that same exact email address, contact at gracelifeflorida.com, and I'd love to get you um, some more information on that. So um, our fifth Sunday service, if you have not uh, been in attendance for one of those before, every time a Sunday um, rolls around in the month where there's five Sundays, um, we worship all together, all ages. Um, usually we do it outside under the shaded walkway, but we'll be doing it in here um, this uh, this month. It's, as you all know, super, super hot outside, so we'll be enjoying the uh, fixed AC next week. Um, but it's an awesome way um, and an awesome opportunity to invite any neighbors um, or friends who may be looking for a church home or, um, or maybe they're not, and you have that opportunity to um, extend that invitation. And then lastly, every single morning, the prayer team prays um, right there in that little area um, in the corner. Uh, Bill and Christy made an awesome sign that's uh, posted right there. If that's something that you're interested in and praying um, for the service and the people that come um, and sit in these chairs uh, every morning and then for the students who will be filling them uh, coming here shortly, um, that would be a great opportunity for you. And I just wanted to extend that invitation. And then lastly, before we go, if you want to stand with me, we will say our Grace Life Charge together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.